Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Link Podcast. Eric, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Welcome back, man. Thanks for having me for ba- having me back, Robbie. Are you excited to be back? I I I am so excited that it's like it's showing on my face. You obviously like me because you're back. Yeah. Either that I got absolutely nothing else to do, and I'm still looking for that paycheck you promised, but never mind. Probably the second one, but that paycheck. I'll, I'll, I'll accept. I'll there. accept contraband in absence of capital, but that's okay. <laughs> I invited you on to talk about Deep Throat, but also I wanted to get a little bit more into Watergate because um, it is an area I've learned uh, obviously a lot about from the Kennedy stuff. Um, just kind of drifted into it. Um, more about Nixon and things of that sort, and we tend to kind of go all over the board. It's kind of how my show goes. But who is Deep Throat? Why is he controversial? Well, the official story, which may in part be a cover story, is that he was Mark Felt, who was the one of the deputy directors of the FBI. I think he was also heavily involved in the Con COINTELPRO programs during the 1950s and 60s that involved domestic intelligence, sabotage, and espionage against various groups, uh, both white on the left and the right. Uh, the KKK, for example, on the left, uh, pardon me, on the right, and uh, the... Um, civil rights movement and some anti-war movements and of course the communist party and trade unions on the left um and the the problem with felt is that although he probably did most of what we thought deep throat did according to woodward and bernstein or burn or, or uh, woodstein who's the carl official bernstein? version of yeah carl bernstein who's the official version of all of this and um, what Felt claimed to have done when, of course, you know, he, he came out and confessed everything and then the book leaked was written about him, which was somewhat critical of his account, is that he was worried about the direction that the FBI was going in and he was worried about all the shenanigans in the Nixon administration. And he simply thought that there was, uh, they were, in fact, Nixon and his crew were violating the Constitution by basically ordering the CIA to shut down a perfectly valid FBI investigation on a bogus claim of national security and uh, protection of um, official protection of secrets act, as the British call it. That's the British version of it. Um, the problem, though, with that is that first of all, Felt's own motive may have been much more careerist. He was expecting to be to be promoted to senior. Uh, deputy director, and he didn't get that. And I believe it was William Sullivan who was promoted over him, very much to his chagrin. So it was probably a great deal of personal vengeance and private payback. Yeah, because why wouldn't he just go to the other administration shenanigans that were going on? I mean, Nixon wasn't the only one that had shenanigans. Absolutely not. And and that, of course, that's one of, that's, that's what's one of Nixon's great defenses. I mean, it's kind of a bad defense to go into court saying that you know you've killed fifteen people. And I said, yeah, but I mean, tons of people have killed more than twenty. You know, so, I mean, I had to get like half the sense of somebody who wiped out 30 people, that sort of thing. So it's sort of like it, it's like tainting everybody with a kind of a, a cosmic brush of corruption. Uh, but the main problem with it is that it well, two things. One, if we read the um, Woodstein narrative, literally, there are all kind of things that Deep Throat was doing that he could not possibly have done. Like, for example, he would have, in several cases, places in the narrative, he would have had to have been virtually in two different places at the same time. So he would have had to bilocate it. He was leaving messages for uh, Woodward in places that messages could not be received. I mean, you know, he was, there was this talk about like this potted plant that was supposed to be always being shifting around. Like when he wanted to meet Woodward, uh, uh, Bob Woodward, he would show up like at 4 a.m. in the morning and move the potted plant to a certain place so that Woodward could see through his window. And know, oh, well, Deep Throat wants to meet today at the regular place, blah, 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 stuff like that. 
The trouble is you couldn't see the potted plant on the basis of where it was from Woodster, from Woodward's apartment, right? So this sounds a little bit like a rather flaky cover story to, to deflect on how they were actually communicating. And another problem is, is that even though Felt was extremely well placed within the FBI, he simply conveyed information that he almost certainly would not have been aware of himself. So it is a very strong possibility, on the face of it at least, prima facie, that there were at least two leakers okay. to Woodward whom he conflated into a single character, although Felt was probably one of them. And the other thing is, and everyone's forgotten about this because of, you know, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, may he rest in peace, just having recently left uh, left his mortal coil behind, uh, with the New York Times and, of course, the Pentagon Papers, which, of course, is connected to the plumbers and the Nixon administration, the great gradual deflation of the whole regime, is that the Los Angeles Times was getting a ton of stuff that was very good and very accurate, as it turned out, from somebody else. And that person's never really been identified. And I do not believe, and now I may be wrong, but I do not believe Felt ever claimed credit for supplying the LA Times with information. So, and and Christopher Hitchens, one who was, you know, Hitchens is not my favorite guy, totally gave up on him, but I wrote him off after he came out in support of, uh, he became basically a, a hawk and a neocon. He made Winnie the Pooh, why are you hating well, that was one reason. That's one reason why I hate him. But I mean, he also came out in favor of the Bush administration and the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Okay, so I have nothing to do anymore whatsoever with Christopher Hitchens. But he was definitely right on one one thing, and he said the deep the Watergate is history's greatest story, being corroborated by a single uncorroborated secret leak. Uh, when you do journalism and investigative journalism, and especially with something that's highly explosive, like the, the deep throat leaks were, you need corroboration. And Nixon and his supporters are by no means in the wrong when they said that the Washington Post waived journalistic protocol in publishing these stories that Woodward and Bernstein built their careers out of, because uh, they were totally unsubstantiated. They journalistically, they really don't rise above the level of what would be the legal, the equivalent to the legal principle of hearsay. Hearsay can be factually accurate, but it is not legally admissible. But it had to have some truth to it because it pushed uh, Nixon to resign, right? It doesn't. I'm, I just said it, hearsay can be truthful, but it's not admissible meaning a court cannot consider it because it does not meet the legal definitions of credible, reliable evidence. And that's this. Uh, and so I say, you, you know, I can I can tell you a whole bunch of things, let's say about, oh, I know one of our old favorites, underground UFO bases manned by reptile people in Arizona. Right. I, I could tell you a bunch of stuff about it that's really true because I was Watergate. That's awesome. I got to hear. Oh, more. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's for Halloween. OK. And, and we could, <laughs> I, I could tell you a whole bunch of stuff about all that, those underground UFO bases that turn out to be 100% accurate. But who's going to believe me if all I've got is me talking to you? I will believe the shit out of you. Tell you that much. <laughs> on, on laptop, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's hearsay. It's rumor. It's innuendo. It's, it's gossip, right? And, and that's why, I, and, that, and, and, you know, everyone, whenever a Nixon supporter or a public campaign says, well, you know, you, Washington Post couldn't be believed. It could, pardon me, because Washington Post could not be relied upon. You would say, well, yeah, well, naturally you'd say that because you're guilty anyway, right? If The more you deny, the more you prove you're guilty. 
I but, I get a lot of crap for defending Nixon. It's not that I defend like I don't think he should have stayed being president. I just think if you look like obviously there's a lot more going on than just Nixon being the bad egg there. There's a whole bunch of agency problems and nobody wants to talk about that. It's like um someone had mentioned on your episode, but I, I just I always hold comments for review. But they were like there wasn't a person that didn't like Kennedy. I was like, well, that's not fucking true because the man's dead. He got assassinated. So obviously someone didn't like him. But you really have to look at it from like obviously people got their own either whether the liberal conservative whatever they want to put their own thing into it but there's never just nobody's ever all good or all bad even like with hoover there was some things that he did that were good and i don't like the man but there's just a lot of stuff that you start looking at and watergate's the one that's synonymous with nixon where i'm like it's never just one guy he had something in he either knew what the political climate was amongst all the agencies and everything there was a reason for him only being the only one you get to hear about yeah, and the other thing, too, is that, and I don't know if it's an American thing, I think they tend to do it less in Europe, where having a history that's several thousand years older than ours, uh, at least in terms of like Caucasian North Americans, not not indigenous North Americans, but, you know, the, the, the descendants of the settlers, our country is only like four or five hundred years old max, right? Three people, and that's four, three or four people ago. Right, and that's like, yeah, like an afternoon, a afternoon stroll in the park for the Europeans. And the Chinese, of course, uh, they're, they're, they tend not to personalize or moralize political scandals and corruption so much. Uh, they see it as a necessary evil to achieve, insofar as they try to rationalize it at all. They tend to see it as a necessary evil to achieve the greater good of political stability and, of course, successful imperialism. Because, of course, the history of Western Europe, especially ever since about well, the beginning of the Crusades, really, in the 11th century, has been intertwined with colonialist and territorial expansion in one form or another. We got to go back to uh, Mark Felt. How did Felt get in contact with Woodward? Well, that's dodgy. Again, it's not really clear from either Woodward's account or what Felt said or what's been written about what Felt said. Much of it is very critical about how he actually made contact with Woodward. Now, what we do know about Woodward is the fact that he was a member of the U.S. Navy and probably a member of ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence. And that means that he, during his sojourn in the armed forces, he would have developed a number of contacts within the law and maintained contacts with the larger intelligence community and including, and this is, and I'm not, you know, changing the topic, but I'm, I'm going to maybe approach this a little bit a slightly different way, because I think it's one of the most important things about both Watergate and JFK and many of the political fiascos of the 1960s and 70s and back in the 50s that we don't pay enough attention to. It's the size and scope and intensity and level of penetration and infiltration of domestic counterintelligence operations. You just took a hit. No, when he when he said um when he said penetration, and you're talking about that. I was like, that's how Deep Throat got his name, which was the porn thing. Yeah, right. Well, okay. So I mean, I I thought that was that was just so subadolescent. No one would stoop so low as to pick that one up. But I'm wrong again. So yeah. So uh, it's the domestic right. intelligence operation <laughs> thing. I mean, I mean, I mean, what? See, let, let let's let's just change course a little bit and let's go back to JFK just for one second, okay? Everyone knows today that there is, although the, the exact circumstances of the assassination are still being debated about, what no one really debates seriously is that there was a cover-up commencing on November 2nd, immediately after JFK's death. 
But what people don't understand when you say that, and they, they write you off immediately, you know, basically they, they, they see an invisible red hat on your head and they simply say you're a maniac, you got nothing to say, get the hell out, right? Conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theorists, right? Or that's just an even uglier way of saying Trump supporter, but because now notice how the discourse is flipped. I think we were talking about that before. When you were when you were conspiracy theorist in the seventies and eighties, you were on the left. When you were a conspiracy theorist in the two thousands, you're on the right. I I heard all that, but she didn't say that you didn't support Trump. I heard Trump supporter, and you said you didn't clarify it with saying that you're not a Trump supporter. Well, I'm completely I'm neutral. I, I mean, let me this way. I'm, I'm <laughs> I, let me this way. I'll, I'll tell you what. This is my view on Donald Trump. Okay, he's not the Antichrist. His skin has gone from orange to normal now. Well, that's because the demonic presence that, you know, the <laughs> the Duca has have, have obviously left him. OK, he so went he's... from the Dukes of Hazard car to just the mild uh, Cadillac. Hmm. But the cover up that we do have evidence for concerning JFK is two things. One, a cover up for what seems to be unless that in itself is a smokescreen for something else of an intelligence failure to take the Oswald threat seriously enough. And of course, a whole bunch of errors, accidental and or accidentally on purpose on the day of Dallas. So a lot of people, like lots, tons of guys in the secret services were running to cover their asses immediately after the hit took place. But more importantly is the huge cover up of the network of domestic spying operations that the US government was running against its own people. and uh, and one of the, the reasons why this is, has become clear, a friend of mine, Leo Simpich, has written you know, a very good book about um, the Mexican embassy episode in the Oswald story, which has been, you know, it's been so muddied and polluted. No one knows anything, <laughs> the slightest idea. Nobody knows actually, if he was even there. Even there, right? No, the, but I mean that so much of that can be white or black propaganda right coming out released at different times for different strategic purposes so the whole thing's an incredible I, I believe he was there only because that only makes sense of why it's so confusing if you're talking about like an intelligence cover-up then they made it so i mean they did a pretty damn good job but it would just be a simple he wasn't there you know if it was that clear cut yeah and we can again we can like i said i recommend to people with most things concerning JFK, be agnostic about a lot of the stuff that draws the most flack and discussion. What does what we do know now, however, is that Mexico City was the site of America's biggest and most important overseas domestic spying operation. Not just They've America, though. Not just America. But 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 but, but it was definitely America's, and yeah. and it may have been others as well. But they had managed to hack all the cables and all the transmissions and set up an entire electronic spying network on both the, the, the Soviet and Cuban ambassad, amba, embassies and consular uh, offices in Mexico City. And they were using that as one of their primary sources about information about the Caribbean, about Cuba in particular, and about Russian, activi uh, Russian activities in the Western Hemisphere. Now, the problem is, is then getting back to your point, as soon as there was a story about Oswald being in Mexico City, and the Warren Commission had been set up, and at, at the time they were very concerned about the serious possibility of, a, of either a Senate or a House separate inquiry into the assassination, right? All of that would have been blown. All of that could have been uncovered by the investigation. 
right? So that's one of the reasons they started scrambling. They started shredding stuff. They started running for cover. And then all of these weird stories about Oswald. No, it wasn't Oswald. It was a double. That was on a different day. It was somebody else. It was a bunch of Mexican communist university students out of their minds on peyote who hallucinated all of this. All of this stuff started many, to keep people from looking at not necessarily what Oswald did or did not do, but from all of the stuff in the ad environment that Oswald could have been transversing through at that time, the, you know, the, the American spying operations. And a lot of that stuff in Mexico City looped back into the domestic spying operations that the CIA, the FBI, military intelligence, naval intelligence, ONI, had going on illegally in places like Miami and New Orleans and Dallas and Houston. Uh, and that's what we mean by a cover-up. A lot of the stuff that we seem to detect quite legitimately to reflect a conspiratorial intent and a conspiratorial effort to conceal doesn't really pertain directly to the assassination. It pertains directly to the underground and occluded vast domestic intelligence spying operations. And that's why we know, we, and the other thing we have learned with certainty is that again, whatever Oswald did or did not do, whoever was running him, or maybe nobody at all, maybe it really was a lone gunman after all. So like I said, being an agnostic, please, if you want to be sane and, and, and rational about all of this, is that they definitely knew about him. He was not an unknown. Well, we know that from all the 201 files that were pulled. Right, down. exactly. So, I mean, that part of it is a lie. See, here's the, this, this, it's the asymmetry of truth, isn't it? We know that they were lying about not knowing Oswald. And therefore, you're more likely to conclude or infer from that, probably incorrectly, that that by itself proves that he was a government agent and he was a government agent at the time that he shot Kennedy. I think that's unproven. I can't obviously say it's not true. I can say, though, it's unproven. But what we can prove, directly and indirectly, is that he was clearly swimming in and well-known by and intensely familiar with U.S. domestic intelligence operations. Well, the counterpoint what people usually bring up is like, oh, well, how do you know that he was an intelligence person? And it was like, well, he first of all, even if he wasn't an intelligence person, the government had files on him and people will deny that there's files on him, even though there's documents that say there's a 201 file that they were pulling from him. I don't think they've ever fully released his 201 or we have bits and pieces of a 201. But he went to another country to defect. You're damn right your intelligence agency is going to monitor or have a file on them, whether he's an intelligence asset or not. You know, so the the argument to that, there's a lot of lone nutters that bring up different points about that. And it's like that none of those work because they, they're going to have a file either way if he is an intelligence agent or if he's not. He went to another country tearing up his U.S. citizenship. Now you're going to be deemed as a threat if you're not an intelligence person. So the lying is that there's it's not really a question of if there was a conspiracy. The conspiracy is in the cover up. Why did they cover up so much if they're if they're protecting domestic or intelligence operations? Oh, that's one answer. Or they had a part in it, and it's just kind of finding out where that is. Yeah. Right. Well, obviously, I cannot – and again, we're just using more logic here, right? logical reasoning. I cannot deny as a issue matter a priori or self-evident, self-evidently true logical propositions that Oswald was not being run by some intelligence operation of some kind. Right. Even a very, very low level one. I mean, it could have been like I said, my my theory is, is that if if there was something like this going on, 
it would have been very small and very low level. It would have been something like George Milton take Schultz taking orders from David Atlee Phillips to, you know, make Oswald do something nutty. And then all the, the counterintelligence, white ops and black ops were in place to blame it on the Cubans or the Russians, right? That would not have been a vast conspiracy. It would not have taken a lot of people, and it could have been done very, very simply. And of course, the other thing too is remember, and the, the defector issue about Oswald, it's, it, it is a truism in intelligence work that a defector and then a return defector in terms of intelligence asset is even more valuable than a double agent because you can use them as a cutout. You can use his identity, even just his name. You can get a, a passport issued to somebody that's got all of Oswald's details on it, because the State Department knows all about it, and run all kinds of stuff using that person. We're going to have to get back to Deep Throat at some point, but sure. do you think? Yeah, but I'm, I mean, I'm really saying, and and this is, but this is the same thing about Deep Throat, right? Like, a lot of the discourse about the conspiracy pro and con, what did Nixon do not do? What did Oswald do not do? What did JFK do or not do? Is really based upon logical extrapolations from bodies of evidence, apart, many of parts of which are losing large chunks from, from you know, from, from the entire, the totality of their bodies. I mean, huge gaps and everything, even with a lot of stuff that's been released and, and or redacted, right? Uh, is that you're, you're still making inferences the whole time. No one really has a smoking no pun, gun, no pun intended, yet. As wait, yet. With the Nixon stuff, that's well documented, I thought, which was the main narrative out there. But I feel like they only released part of what the story is. That's right. They've only released part of the story. Is And remember, our topic is deep throat, right? And, as, and that's what I was trying to say, and getting back to the Hitchens comment about Watergate was the biggest story that ever ran that did not have a second corroborated source. And when you and that's what I was trying to say again, if you look at it from an investigative perspective, that's that's damning. I mean, that's a huge issue, precisely apart from the rather legalistic consideration that the story was not properly vetted because it was objectively not properly vetted. Even if everything in it was true, it was still not properly vetted. Why would a paper, the Washington Post, of all papers in the country at that time, go with a story that that big, that was incorrectly and insufficiently vetted, which means it's not proper journalism? Well, what's the answer? Mockingbird. I'm, okay, explain Mockingbird, because that's Oper part of the answer, I think, if we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, Operation Mockingbird was covert media assets. So you had media people that were in line with the government to be able to post up your stories or whatever your narrative was. Right, and therefore, what would be the motive? Uh, I don't know. So people have a final conclusion. The media is kind of like the mouth to everybody. Washington Post on the left or on the right? Fuck if I know. They all suck, to be honest with you. True. Okay, let me put it this way. Liberal or conservative? Ooh, I don't know. No, the New York Times is more liberal, so I would say conservative mm. on the Washington Post. Mm, okay, let me put it this way. Pro-Nixon or pro-Kennedy? Ooh, pro Nixon. Oh, pro Kennedy. I'm just, I'm Heather Graham and all those people. I never they, read the Washington Post. I'm gonna be well, honest. With you. Don't bother. Okay. But, but the thing about the Washington Post too is you have to remember. Remember all those neocons that were on, on were talking heads back in 1991, and then again in 2003. Remember those guys like Wolfowitz oh, and yeah. Cheney and everybody. Yeah, all the, the ones who are still living. Who are they all working for? 
CNN, Washington, Washington Times, New York Post, Washington, Washington Post, New York Times. The newspapers definitely not the Washington Times. Okay, n- newspapers I don't read: Washington Post, New York Times, New York Post. Any of them with a post or Washington, even the Rolling Stone fucking sucks. They used to be good, and they all just went down shit. Okay, so but I agree with you, and and so L.A. Times, for instance, I don't know what's up with them. I come across documents in the Kennedy-related stuff, and they're posting articles from conspiracy people about there's a conspiracy with Kennedy. So I'm like, I don't think they were in the pocket of Mockingbird because the plenty of CIA files on them, but also I don't read their stuff either. Um, I kind of lost my train read. of thought there for a second, but that's okay. Keep on going. <laughs> no, I'm just, I just, uh, LA Times is one that I don't know if that was in Mockingbird or not because they had posted a lot of conspiracy writings in their work that the CIA had even documented. Like the LA Times had said this, but there's from documents that I do know who was, I guess, in cahoots is the lunch meetings that I can tell with a bunch of time editors and a bunch of other things that have been well documented that they are part of the Operation Mockingbird thing about pitching stories. But somehow they still let stories seep through that might be more conspiratorial, where I wonder if that's just an independent journalist or if that's just an actual like ploy of like, see, they don't just post good articles about us. They post some bad ones, too. Well, you know, everyone's heard of black ops and black propaganda. Do you know what white ops are or white propaganda? I don't know what white ops are, but is white propaganda yeah. propaganda against white people? No, oh. Oh. no, that's just that 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 that's that's called critical race theory. Okay, <laughs> that's different. That's CRT stuff, and we're not going there. Okay, because okay. I never get out of here alive. But the thing is, is that white ops or white propaganda are basically bundles of information which are essentially true, but they're released strategically. To create a particular outcome. Now, you just said that, on your, in your opinion, the LA Times may be outside of the, the post Mockingbird loop because they publish a lot of stuff that would be embarrassing to the establishment or a critical of the LA Times in some way. They would probably be so, more left. Okay, but but notice what it's well, notice what it's doing. They run stories like that. So he said, well, maybe these maybe these guys are okay. Maybe somebody in there is getting good stuff out, and somehow. It's it's slipping the editorial review process and probably all the AI they got set up and the you know the machine learning to detect all the, the suspicious Well, this is back sentences. in the 60s, not now. Well, whatever, but I mean going even up today, right? All this stuff's getting out. And so therefore, but what but if you're if you are hypothetically running a white propaganda operation, what are you doing? You're looking, well, we're not the Washington Post and we're not the York New York Times, and we can prove that we're not been affiliated by the C we've been penetrated and, and incorporated by the CIA because we're running critical stories about the establishment. Yeah, that's what I said. So you've got to double and... double trust us, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not saying that. that's true. I'm merely saying is you can by no means exclude that simply because the possibility of running a white op and a black op by the same outfit is uh, is totally possible. Well, I mean, from what I've read, especially in, in, in and that's one of the things why America is such a uh, uh, cornucopia for domestic intelligence operations. It's such a pluralistic society. Do you think with, you can run you can run both ends against the middle nonstop? Do you think with the Nixon um, and Watergate fiasco, do you think that the reason why the public's mind and the history books are all talking about Nixon is because a lot of these propaganda tactics or not propaganda, but all these black ops or white ops operations were in play to be able to just point him as the main focus? It seems like every headline, whenever you type in Watergate, you can look at old newspaper magazines, everyone headline is Nixon. And it's not like maybe it might be the slow trickle of information or the one-sided information that points it to Nixon where all these reporters are running with. But I feel like this also boosted and ingrained it into the public's mind that 
Nixon is the Watergate whole thing is all Nixon. And we can look at documentation from like the church committee and others that there's a lot more than just Nixon going on. I mean, the church committee, in my opinion, is a bit of a whitewash, even though they did a lot of good stuff. They just never posted the CIA's budget. They never went into really giving any damages to the CIA besides like an article that said that their reputation would never recover. And it seems like they're doing fine now. So it's like I don't know what the whole but reading that church committee thing is a giant leveler for a lot of things now i'm not a leftist and i'm not on the right either i believe deep state but when you start looking at like cia on college campuses that's still happening today i mean those are real ethical concerns that have not been adjusted to and been fixed so to say that this was a watergate issue or to say that this was this is bs yeah um i think a good way of thinking about okay we're talking about watergate and we're all fucked. The, That's the Watergate the legacy in the in the in the on the the meta level. Jean Baudrillard um, was a great one of the. He had nothing to do with postmodernism, but everybody thinks he's one of the architects of postmodernism. It's a long story, but anyway. Uh, he, oh, yeah, he, I know but, him. That guy who's in the postmodernist. That's right. That postmodernist guy who wasn't a postmodernist, Jean Paul. It's funny. <laughs> everyone, everyone disavowed themselves on anything to do with it, and yet they 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 have been posthumously nailed to the side of the thing it's like you know ahab chasing moby dick there so the abyss forever um he very he made a really really good comment about watergate because it was his theory of the alibi and basically and it's a little bit of a play on Guy Debord's earlier theories about the society of the spectacle and he says an alibi is when you run a story out in public, you shove it out there. You you for you know you every you stuff it in everybody's face so they can't possibly not be aware of it. Like, like a turkey remember, on Thanksgiving. Yeah, and um, remember and and Watergate, Watergate. Remember what was going on? I mean, I mean, I was growing up at the time. Every everything you were talking about was Watergate. One for the two towers, like you know, after nine eleven. I was saying my cousin because I wasn't in the United States at the time. I was in Australia. I says, "How it's going over there?" It's like six months after, right? And he says, "For for the past year." Where you've been talking about nothing else, right? Okay, so and that's what you call an alibi. Not because the two towers didn't happen. Nothing. I'm not in, talking about the two towers. I'm not in that two towers denial. Okay, but it's you use something that seems to prove the exact overwhelming proof of the thing that's the exact opposite of the truth. And what Baudelaire said about Watergate is it's an alibi. In other words, they brought Nixon to the point of impeachment, forcing him out to prove that the system worked. But by proving the system worked, look at Nixon. What about that? We got him. What are you saying? What are you ignoring at the moment that you do that? All the guys who should have been nailed too, but walked. Right? That's the alibi. We make this huge deal about Nixon, and by killing the monster Nixon, we've proven that we are monster killers. Therefore, if we are monster killers, there can't be any monsters, because we just killed one. See how great we are at killing monsters? What about all the other monsters who don't get killed? That's well, that's because they're not monsters, or that's par that's conspiracy theory, or you're paranoid. We got Nixon. If the but you know, let's break it down to you know, like you know, real basic level stuff. If the system was fundamentally corrupt, Nixon never would have been forced to resign because he would have been part of the corruption. We would have been part of it too. But how can we be part of the corruption if we got rid of him? That proves that we're not corrupt. It's like 
that's like some legal speak or some shit like that that gets you confused where you just go, okay, and then you walk away and try and contemplate what your life is while your wife sells your futon on the yard sale. Right. You didn't see that one coming. So that's what it, that's what he said. He said Watergate. I mean, it happens in Italy all the time. I was talking to my friend uh, Guido Preparata. I was on another podcast with somebody else, and we were talking about the the maxi trial. Was sorry, what? You cheating on me? No, 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 no. It wasn't his podcast. It was somebody else's podcast. But Guido was a guest. He, yeah, he was but talking about my new book. I, I, at the end of this t- podcast, I'm going <laughs> to do a, a, a plug for my new book, okay? Because Guido just loves it. He says he, I sent him the MS, and he, he said I can't put it down. And I said, yeah, well, well, that's because of the glue and the binding. But anyway, uh, I was t- talking, chatting with him in another podcast, and we were talking about the maxi trials in Palermo in Sicily, right? And they got 400 mafiosi in these cages. Remember that? These huge cages, literally cages in the courtroom. They were all caged up. And they were all screaming and shouting and yelling up Sandys and throwing cigarette boxes at each other and, and crap like that. And and this was like the Sicilian state is finally bearing, being serious about the mafia. Look. You can't claim falsely that we're not concerned and taking law and order seriously. Right? It's hard to argue with if it's just the spectacle. But what's the story behind the spectacle? Mafia in Sicily is not out of business. It's doing fine. There's a lot of that bread and circus stuff. Like for some reason, the public just feels justified when someone's behind bars or when it's something like this. As long as it's on screen, like we, I noticed this when um they do the uh they bring like um they should they talk about do a news story about soldiers coming home, for instance, and they'll have like for the ones that didn't make it home, and then they'll have someone folding up a flag and handing it to a family member while the lady's crying. And I go, they had to set that up that shot. It's a low angle. The guy is bent down like this, taking the shot. So once you start seeing that, you start going, why do we need that as a public? And I I feel like it's just because of all the psychological stuff that's been going on for all these years when it comes to psyops and all these types of things. And when I say that, it's just because there's been a lot of confusion and there's never been answers. For instance, an example you mentioned, 9-11. There's something going on there, and I don't mean that the towers didn't fall. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that I've read the 983-page commission report, and the fact that there was a – yeah, so there's a closed-door testimony or whatever they did. You can't – there's so many questions there. Why did you try and get rid of the scrap metal a week later? There's a lot of stuff where it's like family members that are crying and upset that there's documentation still locked. And then you get called a conspiracy theorist for that, and I go, we should not be at this point. That's reasonable skepticism to have of like what the fuck was going on. Okay. Now – okay. Now on that, when I was having my chat with Guido on the other other podcast – Stop mentioning the other podcast. My my secret relationship. What's their name at least? Uh, no, it's it's the, the Lovers of Eric. Okay, so when I was having my, my podcast with the Lovers of Eric, and I was talking to Guido as one of my lovers of Eric, right? That's all. It's platonic. He was in he was in Italy, and, I, and I'm here in Canada. Okay, so it's nothing, you know, it's fine. So but we are getting back to Deep Throat, aren't we? We are getting back to Deep Throat stuff. That's right. From here on, Deep Throat, deep throat 1, 2, and then Son of Deep Throat. But, okay, <laughs> the and, and then the, the, the dog of Deep Throat. But uh, the point is robbie is that <laughs> after during our talk about the maxi trials in sicily not only is the mafia absolutely thriving in sicily like it always has for a number of really reasons that are really anthropological and sociological right he because it's a clientele society and a clientele social structure is built is 
requires criminal middlemen to make it run. I mean, that's how a clientele society works, all by unofficial channels and back channels. That's it's it's an anthropological fight. It has nothing to do with morality, but this is the point. Guido says, "Okay, so there's this huge spectacle. The Maxi trials. You get 400 Sicilian mafiosi locked up like animals in a cage for like weeks on end, and they're photographed and they're you know 24 seven. It's it's like a C-SPAN. It's Sicilian version of C-SPAN when it was running until all the judges got assassinated. But I mean, Wait, it was what? running right. It, you know, Falcone got blown up, and uh, someone else got blown up a couple weeks after him, and that's sort of when it petered out. But coincidence." No, uh, but you no, know, that we do really know about. But uh, the point is, he said, but no one believed it, and so that's what he was pressing me on. He says, we they do these spectacles, and it convinces nobody. So why do we keep on doing the spectacles, right? And of course, we had a different chat about that. But then it it just reinforced something that I've been aware of for a very, very long time, and other people are aware of it too. And they call my attention to it, and I thought about it. And at first, I kind of resisted it, and then I began thinking about it more. And I say, no, I think there's something to the theory. And it's really it's it's cultural relativism. It's the fact that if you're a certain type of society with a certain type of history, you're going to be the the public consciousness is going to be a bit more collectively predisposed to a kind of a cynicism. I mean, France is a classic example of that, right? I mean, you almost cannot scandalize the French. When, when it's almost impossible when, when it comes to political crises and, and, and outrages, right? Especially of a neurotic or sexual kind. I mean, the absolute, the, the, the French thought, I can tell you this firsthand because I was in Europe at the time it was happening. The French thought that nothing proved the insanity. I mean, the near neanderthalic stupidity of americans more than the clarence thomas fiasco not familiar with that one. Oh, clarence thomas when anita hill claimed that he shouldn't be appointed to the supreme court because he was engaging in sexual harassment of her in the office and also bill clinton as well they're actually going to impeach a first-rate president they thought that bill clinton was a first-rate president first-rate president of the united states because he had an affair with one of his interns saying crabla Incroyable. You know, I mean, it's just not possible. Okay. Yeah. Well, the French think about sex a lot differently than we do over here. Well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? And apart from whatever we think or about sex or not, American culture with its own history, which means it's no better or no worse than the French one, just different. Uh, if you apply the general rubric of cultural relativism and historical contextualism, is essentially a moralistic society. I mean, Americans are hideously hypocritical as a group because on the outside, we're sort of neo-puritanical. And, and I, I draw no difference between the left and right on this regard. The left is as puritanical in its own way as the right is, meaning a desire for purity, a desire for conformity, a desire for agreement. Uh, and, and if you really want to get cheap and nasty about it, this is where identity politics and virtue signaling and emojis and likes and cancel is it, you know, cancel culture and all that stuff kind of feeds into, but it both flows from it and feeds back into it. Is that in America, which is also, this is culture that produced the Western, one of the two or three truly archetypal cinematic forms, right? is about finding and killing the bad guy. Well, if your problems are systemic and structural, killing a bad guy is not unimportant, like you just said at the beginning of the podcast, rightfully so. Nixon really shouldn't have been president. 
right? I'll agree with you. I'll agree with that. I'll concede that. I again, it's the same thing. I don't think he was the Antichrist itself, um, and I think what he did with Detente was a night. Although Kissinger was co-pilot of that one, was a really, really neat piece of diplomatic. Um, Are you saying westerns were programming us this whole time? I th- well, it's both, Robbie. It, it's it's both cause and effect. It's not an accident. The American American culture. I mean, by American culture, I mean white middle class, westward moving settler culture developed the western as a. There's as a no such genre. thing as a middle class anymore. It's gone. Okay, what used to be the American bourgeois and petty bourgeois and lumpen proletariat moving out west created this thing that they called the western. Okay. Mm-hmm. And one of the and, and it became a, a universal form because it's a type of artistic form that is easily exportable because it is both puritanical and narratively simple, but intensely dramatic and exciting, right? So it's both pleasure and persuasiveness. And what it is, it's about the killing the bad guy. And when you kill the bad guy, civilization will flourish, right? What Shame. about saving the saving the damsel in distress? Well, that's part of it too. That's a byproduct of killing the bad guy, but that's not specifically unique to the Western, right? I mean, you can have lots of damsel in distress stuff, and you don't necessarily kill the bad guy. Uh, that that's sort of like a, a a byproduct. But the funny thing about the Western is, is that when you look at most Westerns, not all of them, but most Westerns, they tend to be somewhat asexual. They they tend to be almost anti-romantic things. Women do not figure highly or prominently in most Westerns, other than, and this is the point, as symbols of civilization and culture. Like they're, they're sort of symbolic of the femininity or the feminization process that will the hero will succumb to and undergo after he successfully kills the bad guy. In particular, Clint, Clint Eastwood Sorry? movies, yes. Um, I'm not saying there are exceptions, but one of the things that makes the deviant Western deviant is precisely the fact that they're attacking the icons of the genre, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the Sergio Leone spaghetti Westerns, which are some of my favorite films of all time, are totally cynical parodies of the Western because it's he sort of goes for the throat. He goes for the juggler, right? And he pulls it out and says, what the Western is, is all about death. So let's just make, let's do a Western with mega death in it, right? So, but that gets us back to killing the bad guy. And, but the thing about the Western is because it's a mythology about settlement and the creation of civilization out of wilderness. It's really Genesis, right? It's It's a secular... American-based version of the book of Genesis, hmm. the beginning of things, right? You narratively translate that impersonal historical experience into the intensely personal and highly subjective confrontation between enemies, one of which is morally right and one of which is morally wrong. And when the one who is morally wrong goes down, morally right prevails and civilization continues the way it's supposed to well that's been the long archetype of history of good and evil in every single like literature basically yeah but different cultures handle good good and evil very differently like for example you don't get this sort of thing in in chinese history because chinese political philosophy is based upon um uh seasonal cycles of recurrence Remember, civil empires rise, they thrive, then they fall. What happens when the empire falls? You get a new empire. And over and over and over again, right? That and it's so it's cyclical history. American history is linear. 
because it's more biblical in its in its imaginary. Not necessarily that all Americans are, are religious; they're not. There's many Americans are secular. Probably the majority now are clearly secular, but they still operate within a cultural ambit that relies a great deal upon the religious imaginary. I mean, when Hillary Clinton says with a straight face, "Get on the right side of history," you know that's that's like Saint Augustine. Right. What's, what's wrong? And with you Hillary kind Clinton? of, yeah. And you kind of, and She's you hot. kind of come out. Sorry. Said, what's wrong with Hillary Clinton? She's hot. Yeah. Anyway. In a, um, in, a, in a mean school teacher way. I was upset with her over one thing, which was that she did not go postal on Bill's ass after that shit happened. I wanted to see some clothes being thrown out on the lawn and shit. Okay. All I'm going to say about that <laughs> is when I when when I lived in Britain, the most unsettling thing that ever happened to me was finding out how many English men really thought Margaret Thatcher was hot. I thought Margaret Thatcher's hot. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, there you go. I honestly have never seen her before. Well, I'm going to talk about this in my other podcast. And, you know, there was this guy at my other podcast who was going about how hot Margaret Thatcher was. And I said, you know, it was like my dark days back in Britain, you know. What is she I mean, hanging like? around the pubs, listening to all these English guys who thought that, you know, really getting it on because Margaret Thatcher was, like, really hot. But anyway... uh. What was I talking about? I got to yeah, find the right out side, what Margaret, the right side of history, on. the right side of history. If you come here, here's the thing. Think about it. deconstruct it for a second. Okay. I mean, not, don't, don't go all postmodernist on me. Let's just deconstruct this for uh. a second. When uh. yeah, I know, yeah, uh. someone, uh. someone called uh. her once. It was a female journalist. He called her a, a slimy codfish. She's got the Nancy Grace haircut that I can't. Oh yeah. I know. Uh, look, I don't want to go into it. Okay. Marijuana. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to make my marriage work. I'm trying to make my marriage work, okay, at home, and I don't want to go. In, I want to go down these channels. But the definition the, the, of a key lime pie or snickerdoodle is what that looked like. I don't like snickerdoodles. I like key lime pie, but they have to be like really well made because they don't. You don't do it right. It tastes like peppermint toothpaste. It tastes like a fucking sock with butter in it. Well, yeah, something like that. Anyway. But when you come out and you say, let's but deconstruct it without going down all getting all postmodernist on on my ass about it, when you say, get on the right side of history, in order for you to be able to say that and sound like you mean it, and I think she means it because like most politicians that fail in the end, they start believing their own bullshit, like Nixon did, I think, at the end. Um, and Trump, who knows? But when she said get on the right side of history, what is it to order for you to say that do you have to presuppose what kind of set of assumptions most of which will probably be unconscious because they're culturally determined needs to be floating around in the, the the soggy neuro unconscious we all have to to come out and say something like that what's required what what kind of moves do you have to make so give me you know it's not a rhetorical question I know. I'm just waiting for you to give me the answer. No, I'm not going to give you the answer. You you work it out. Look, this is how I live my you, life. You you and both your years. viewers, you work you work it out. I would think that if you know if she's talking, I see. I don't know because I don't think she understands really what to do. I think she's really good at taking orders. So I always feel like whenever she spoke, she was getting orders from somebody. Whoever came up with it, whether it's her or not, even if she was plagiarizing. What do you have to assume to make say out loud a sentence like that? Get on the right side of history. She's probably on the right. I don't know. Western ideology no. still. How about this? What you have to do 
there's several things you have to do, and I'm not going to talk about them in descending order. These are just they're bundled together as a package. But one of the most outstanding things you're doing, <laughs> yeah. Well, we are talking about deep throat, right? So, <laughs> it, you have to implicitly hypothesize a moral understanding of history, or rather, that history is a moral phenomena, right? That is a really good way of understanding the, the Western monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And of course, each one of those is broken down to dozens and dozens of fragments and subgroupings, right? But one of the things that, that the monotheist, the Occidental monotheistic world, well, which came from the East, actually, but the mono, Occidental monotheistic worldview does is that unlike the, the pagan Greek and Roman and Egyptian Syrian traditions that it was reacting against, is that it takes natural phenomenon and phenomena and invests it with moral significance. Right? How do we know that the world is fallen, has been alienated from God? How do we know? There's too much lousy shit in it. Disease, death, suicide, suffering. These things are morally bad, therefore the moral universe has been, the universe has been contaminated because a good God, the source of nature, out of his goodness would flow a good nature, a universe with a positive moral charge to it, right? But we don't see that, or we see a great deal of something else. Now think about it. So you use death and suffering and disease and famine and earthquake and crappy submersibles that implode 4,000 feet under the water That's when they're not so supposed sad. to. That's so sad. Don't even say that. That's so uh, sad. Yeah, well, yeah, but that – somebody – you know, I'm a lawyer. I tell my first-year students, we're going to play – say, for the next three years, people, we're going to play nonstop mind games with you, okay? We're going to get our, head, our fingers into your brain and start rearranging things. So you might as well start now learning it today with me, okay? When you go home tonight and turn on the TV or go online – and bring up the news, and you hear about the little submersible that got crushed when it was violating a maritime graveyard like the Titanic, or a plane that blows up in midair, or another bus or ferry in Indonesia that sinks, or a bus in India that goes off the cliff, or or you know uh, a fertilizer plant in Africa that blows up. The first thing that's going to go through your mind is damages. Who's going to pay and how much and how are we going to get it? Right. That's not even what I'm thinking. I just feel bad because it was a 19 year old kid on there. And I have to think they they put out an article that said that the, the, the when the sub crushed, it happened so fast and it exploded with like the heat of the sun. And I go, that's a great way for people to stop feeling bad that these people might have just been slowly cracking and breaking under all this pressure in a sub. Well, what was worse would that be is that they were actually stuck down um, in the vicinity of the Titanic and not had lost power or had lost mobility and were basically slowly suffocating. Jesus, I'm just going to make me cry. Because that, that would have been tantamount to being buried alive. I know they weren't okay, supposed yeah. to be there. I'm not saying that. No, I'm no, just, it, it, it's, it's not. It, it is that whole that whole setup. It was, it was garbage when you look at it from top to bottom. It was complete garbage and that they shouldn't have been doing it and they shouldn't have been there. And any parent should not take their kid 
into something like that, no matter how badly the kid wants to go. Parents shouldn't even want to go in the first place. But anyway, I'm not passing judgment, okay? But I mean, here's the thing. If you see the universe in moral terms, you're going to see history in moral terms. And so when you and go back to your question, which seems like 50 years ago when you asked it, which is like, why Nixon? Nixon, 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 Nixon. Because he was morally it, bad. He is morally bad, but so are like thousands, tens of thousands of other people in Washington. And this is the guy we're focused on now. Partially it's media, partially it's spectacle. But I think it, it and all that's true. And I'm not going to deny any of it. And I've, I've done a lot of work on it, but it goes even deeper than that. And it goes right down toward the kind of the cultural bedrock of the society, which is what the French call the mentalitate, you know, the collective consciousness of the culture of the society, provided there is one, or at least the collective consciousness of certain hegemonic groups within the broader society, because as we know, Native Americans and African Americans experienced World War II, let's say for as an example, quite differently than let's say Caucasian Americans did. I mean, Chester Himes, uh, a guy I want to come, I'm got a book on him coming out of I'm it's way on, it's on the back burner at the moment, but I've got some been working on a major study of Chester Himes and his Harlem crime what you uh, novel got series. There? What you got over there? What where? You said you got something on the back burner. What you got? Yeah. yeah, no, that's a cat. And uh <laughs> yeah, you know what his cat's called? Son of Deep Throat. And and he says and his in his autobiography, most of his early novels are generally autobiographical. And he simply said, you know, nobody nobody in Watts was really that upset about Pearl Harbor. Right. So when you say things like the cultural collective unconscious, you always have to be careful about which group you're actually talking about, right? But I think in terms of the European Anglo-American middle class, or what used to be middle class. Uh, Caucasian elements, you know, social groupings within the the national network of cultures. Uh, a, a moralistic view of history is kind of sine qua non. I mean, without that, not. Um, can, I, can I ask? This you is a, the way we have to see things. Can I ask you a moral question? Not a moral question, but a, a, a perspective question of a right way of thinking about things. If you say no, it'll be a shorter question. No, I'm not going to say no to that. I would say I'm tackling. I'll put it to you this way. I'll, okay, I'll put it to you this way. I think that my morality, or, or let me put it this way, my it is difficult to live in the world for a very long period of time without filtering what your senses are feeding into you, into your your neural centers without a moralizing component to it and by my moralizing i mean understanding it in moral terms does this conform or violate the principles by which we live more as moral beings or self-proclaimed moral beings right then let me ask you know, a... is that good is that morally right or is it morally wrong then and i the think at the door Leave the, Sorry, yeah. the, leave the morals well, at the door. Well, I'm not. This I'm like... not. You see, but you see, that's an artificial. You, you can't redo really that because you can't leave the morals at the door because it's kind of like Kant, right? Our moral categories are directly embedded within our brains. There's one way that we. All right, this is a lot for this question, but hold on. 
I want to ask, I want your opinion on this. And I think this is a healthy way to think about things. And it's, it's, it puts people in, I wouldn't say it does put people in a moral kind of conundrum a little bit when you start, when there's certain subjects. This. I get called a conspiracy theorist, which I'm, I don't think I am. I, I entertain some of them. Sure. I like to have fun with some of them, but I try and think of things more logically and more kind of critically on this, which makes a lot of people that would say that like conspiracy theory, once they get to know me, they go, okay, it's not really a conspiracy theorist. That's a healthy sense of skepticism right there. But when it comes to like, I always bring up the example of like Charles Manson and people go, oh my God, how are you going to defend Charles Manson? First of all, I think Charles Manson was nuts. I've seen interviews with him, but you don't go to jail for being nuts. You know, there's a lot more going on there and perjury in his court case that Vincent Pelosi do is a huge problem. So I kind of bring up these moral questions where I go, if you're already going, oh, this is what I see of him, put him away. It's like, well, that's what you want. What is the truth? You know, just because you want this outcome is it done the right way? And I do believe it being right. Like I believe the American public should know about a lot of things. I forgot you mentioned something else, but you started going into this long answer to a yes or no on my question. So I forgot what it was. It might come back to me. It might. What's, what, what's, what's my morality or what's my, my take on morality. And I would say that my take on morality, it's, it's Schopenhauer kind of articulated for the first time. And then Wittgenstein picked up on it because Schopenhauer was probably the the decisive influence on what we call the young Wittgenstein, you know, the, up to the time of the guy who wrote the Tractatus. And then after that, he kind of became his own thing and started spinning a lot. Uh, but basically, it's like in Wittgenstein, uh -huh. well, spinning his wheels a lot uh, while also going in circles. And I have, by the way, have you seen The Flash yet? It's really good. I, uh, I, what there I like a couple was, moments where I, I was like, what the fuck am I watching? The, look, the part I liked was, was the birth of the multiverse at the end. Okay. During the, the time travel arena, you know, that I like arena Michael thing. Keaton. That actually, I, I thought that's the one, if anything saves this film, it's going to be that. Okay. I like that bit. And the way that Adam West just popped out of nowhere. The yeah. 1966 Batman. I love I, that. I, I mean, will that, say that during made that, it worthwhile. That I, made it worth my 35 bucks because it was my turn to pay. Okay. $35. That made that. Well, my, my wife okay. well, I'll say Adam West is my Batman, but Michael Keaton, I think I had moved him up there. But then once I was like, I think Michael Keaton might be my new favorite. And then there, I was like, wait a minute. Is he going to keep dying over and fucking over again? And I was like, Jesus. And I just walked out of the movie. <laughs> Here's my take. I'm, I'm, okay, we, I got stuff with all the the, the verbal footnoting. Okay, it's but, fun. I like it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I mean, my you're show, paying me for this, so I don't really care what I do. show is conversation. First. Yeah. Okay. Here, I'll tell you the thing. The Tim Burton Batman. I feel, and this actually is relevant to conspiracy theory a little bit. I think we had a conversation once about Stone's JFK. And I said the thing that gets me about JFK, I agree with what James Elroy, the guy who, the guy who's the subject of the book, my book that is coming out. The real Zoli. deep throat. The real deep throat. Oh, yeah. Demon dog deep throat is that, and say that in Japanese backwards, man. That's down in the dirty and, deep throat. Yeah. And yeah, Takashita. And the thing is, is that with uh, the Tim Burton Batman, in other words, Stone put all this effort to make a really shitty movie about the Kennedy assassination. When what he should have done is taken all that talent, all that drive, all that energy, which is all there and made a film adaptation of the Don DeLillo novel Libra, which I think is the greatest thing done on, on the Kennedy assassination and on Oswald of all time. And Demon Dog agrees with me. He said, once he read it, he said, I knew I could never write about, Ken that I was planning a book about the Kennedy assassination. He said, I couldn't do it. He said, there's no way I'm gonna mess with this. This is a work of art. 
And I'm not going to touch it. So he came up with Underworld USA instead, which is sort of his variation of a theme rather than a direct challenge to 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 the Lilith's book. But the point is, is that when I was watching Batman back in 1989, the Tim Burton Batman, I said, walked out and I said, what they should have done is taken everything in that movie that was good and there's a lot of good in it. And they should have done an adaptation of the Englehart Marsh Rogers run in Detective Comics in 1977. Do you remember that one? It's sort of like a month in the year of Batman. Yeah, yeah, but you can still go on Google it online, okay? Because it's like a month in life life of Batman. Hugo Strange comes back after 40 years. He disappears in 1930. The year is 1977. He's been gone for 37 years, and he comes back. Okay, Penguin's in it. Joker's in it. He sort of gets back to Catwoman at the very end of it, and there's a bunch of stuff in in between, like Deadshot and Clayface, and all those other people running around and doing crap. Okay, and I said that's what he should have done. It had mad scientists. It had monsters. It had zombies. It had, that's when the Joker was doing his Joker fish thing, right? He was turning all the fish in the world to look like the Joker, so he could claim copyright violation, and therefore royalties, right? That's, that's what it was. I said that's the movie Tim Batman movie Tim Burton should have made. Right? You could have had Nicholson and De- DeVito in the same movie at the same time, playing their respective characters. Like DeVito is the Joker and, and Nicholson is the, is the Penguin, right? And no, I no, 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 no. DeVito is the Penguin. And yeah, I, I, no, I know that, Rob, but I was just trying to stand, you know, I was trying to be funny here for a change. Okay? So that's what they should have done. So that's why I feel about Stone. But what was I saying? Yeah, okay, here's the, uh, but the thing about The Flash is the one thing that saved it was the birth of the multiverse at the end. I thought, okay, it was worth my 35 bucks. You know, because I was paying. Uh, that's that's what made it worthwhile. But going back to morality, my view of morality is Wittgenstein's version of what Schopenhauer was learning from Schopenhauer at the time, and it's known today as language game theory, or language game theory. And what it is is it's a radical, phenomenal contextualism, which is that it is possible. I'm mean, talking about logical and, and philosophical verification of moral hypotheses. He says it is possible to come up with an objectively morally right or morally wrong statement in any given situation, depending upon what the rules of moral language are. Right? You know who's exempt from that rule? Uh, tell me. People that choose not to talk. That's right. But they still think. Cats, that's why cats are so exempt from it. Wait, you can get hurt for thinking? Uh, today you I can, <laughs> yes. Today you can, today you can, yes, because uh, what everyone is doing, because basically we're, everyone in America is assembling themselves into an army. On two well, we're sides, really right? individualized tribes and groups right now, which is nuts to me is because like, I don't care if you want to be gay i don't care if you want to be any of that type of stuff it doesn't bother me or affect my life does it no it doesn't it, people are like upset that other people are doing things that they feel like is going to impede on their life and i'm like just live your own life and you'll be fine i swear to you you're going to wake up the next day but everyone is also criminalizing silence criminalizing silence, like yelling at them for not speaking out about a certain thing yes like so, celebrities are getting shit for that. Yes, but fuck. Why celebrities. aren't you denouncing X on your Facebook page? You can do it. So why aren't you? Because I only why got do two you have a problem? Why 
and my favorite question, right? The, the, my favorite underhanded legal maneuver about, sorry, verbal maneuver of the last 10 years. Why have you got a problem with that? Well, because I believe in the presumption of innocence until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, but why do you want that? People who, bad, pe bad people who are on the wrong side of history don't go to jail like they should or get executed like they should because you can't prove they're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't know if anybody wrong with you? be executed, but... Right. So yeah, so that's my take on, on morality. It is possible to make morally false or morally true statements, but only within the terms of the rules governing the moral discourse of that particular group at that particular time. So there's, there's no such thing as a universal morality per se, but that does not preclude the possibility of an approximate moral certainty within the context in which one is actually having a conversation. What about authenticity? What is your perception what about authenticity? of authenticity? What is your perception of it? My perception of authenticity is it's usually claimed by people who don't have any. Damn. Because if you're talking about it, that's just you're you're advertising the fact that it's absent. Right? The more you wave the flag, the more you know there's nothing there. I like to think I have it, but I don't know. Okay, you got it, Robbie. I just spoke the truth. But By I the way, it. what's what's that logo you got in your shirt there? The peace sign. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, it kind of looks yeah. The peace sign. Yeah, but it looks kind of phallic. It's got a um sunflower in it and a bee and a bunch of flowers in it. Anyway, I picked this up in Cambodia. You may not be able to see it. I picked it up in Cambodia. It's like Angkor beer. My beer, my country. That's nice. Yeah, it's great. I love it. It's one of my favorite shirts. Yeah, okay. So what is it we're talking about now? It really brings out your eyes. It does. Um, now, it's talking about the perception of authenticity. Why are we talking about this? Why not? Okay. Well, what's, what's your view? Define authenticity. I don't know. I think a lot of people like it goes back to the tribe thing. I think a lot of people get upset about sometimes when someone says something that they're trying just to be speak their mind. I mean, do you want people that are filtering themselves in front of you or would you prefer people that were just open about how they feel about things? You get a more genuine thing. It's like people are not happy that certain people might say something. So they want to limit that person's speech. But it's like it doesn't change their thoughts, though. It doesn't change how they feel. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, but that's a, yeah, but that's but today. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Well, I just I just kind of had to adjust the mic a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, my problem with that, well, it's not my problem with it. I mean, sympathize with that view, but I just think that view is becoming obsolete because what everyone is charging to is basically okay. Um, Jean Pierre Dupuy wrote Dupuy wrote a really good book about the history of artificial intelligence and computer and machine learning. Um, and he was actually involved in the French um, IT industry for quite some time before he became a full-time academic. And his take on all of this is that the secret of AI, the, the, the real imperative, the cultural imperative and the normative imperative behind AI is not building a computer that thinks like a person. It's not has nothing to do with it. The real drive behind it is to create a generation of people who have been trained to think like computers. So we're trying to create a situation in which people will be compelled to imitate computer behavior. I agree with that. Because if we, if look, again, this is, you don't want to talk about conspiracy theories. You wanted to talk about conspiracy theory that nobody was really talking about. Talk about the great reset sometime. 
Yeah, I mean, I I just don't like the language that gets attached to that. Well, me neither. But I mean, but but we can agree upon one thing. Let's call it the fourth industrial revolution. And the fourth industrial revolution, we, if we are reading the tea leaves correctly, we are in the very early stages of the fourth industrial revolution. The turning point was probably machine learning coupled with 3D manufacturing. That was probably when we reached the point of no return and we've gone into a new historical period, which just like the like the industrial or steam engine revolution, in many ways, not completely, of course, but in many ways was discontinuous with what came before. And therefore, there was a very, very long learning slope and, shall we say, attitudinal adjustment period. And that's what we're going through now. And it's called the fourth industrial revolution. And the thing is, is that if we are going to digitalize all aspects of our social being, which we are doing, like we're doing right now, talking on a podcast with my mic around my head, right? And at the same time, we are developing machine learning and algorithms that will evaluate our behavior. So we are probably sliding into something like a Chinese form of a social credit system, electronically policed and managed, then what is the goal of human cognition? What will a properly adjusted, normal, correctly behaving human being be like? And it will be one who has been trained or altered in some way, possibly by neural implants, partly by subliminal messaging, mainly by cognitive restructuring uh, in the public schools or through online education, to basically think like a computer. You are, will not, you will be dissuaded, you will be inhibited, voluntarily inhibited, from spending more than 15 minutes on any topic. Damn, that would suck for me. That's right. Because these broadcasts of yours go on for an hour, even though they seem like two years, right? Uh, you're Damn. not supposed to... You're not, so in other words, you don't look at anything in depth, you but you me. run through as much stuff as possible, right? I like to have conversation. Yeah, I know. It's going to be illegal at some point. You authentically like authentic conversations because you're authentic. I try to be, but goddamn... I've done 1,500 of these fucking things, but exactly the same throughout all of them. I can't keep that up forever. Trust me. And I really like the way in the flash to indicate when, when Barry was going backwards in time, he was standing still and his legs were moving in reverse. Do you see I know, that? That was funny. I that love was, that. that I thought that was so stupid. I mean, but it was gloriously <laughs> stupid, you know? I like that. But no, no, no. The, 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 the chrono pit thing, that, that was really what made the film. Okay. Actually, somebody went online and posted something. It was impossible to save all those babies. I mean, even if he was That's the part at... that really got me that I just thought was cringy. I think that was the only time I ever really cringed in a thing. I was like, I get it. But afterwards, like after the scene was over, I was kind of like, I don't know how I feel about that. Because it wasn't. it was bad, but then it was also like the way he did it, they kind of explained how like fire was going to hit the baby. So he put them in a microwave. And I was just like, damn, it's just like. But I thought they made the Flash look a little bit like um like he was on the spectrum. How do you mean spectrum? I, I, I mean, I, like uh, he like he was autistic or something because they had him going like this with his hands and they made him like kind of socially awkward. But I think they hit a little bit more too close to the it's not really being socially awkward. He would say random things like I don't know. And he would say like something and sp splatter out where I would just go, what are they trying to do to Barry Allen? Like, it's not it's not um, 
It's not the what the flash. I is. think it was less Barry Allen and more um like close to Ray Ezra Ray. Miller. It was more I think it was basically it was an inside joke on Ezra Miller's expense. Because oh. you know, all the, the problems and stuff. Oh well this I was said, filmed after, I mean before all that happened. Was it? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was I thought it was concurrent. Anyway, they it doesn't not, matter. Anyway, he was doing it. he was doing a spoof on himself, I think, is what was going on there. Oh. But anyway. Um yeah, of course, you know, my wife knows something about comic books, but she went because I wanted to see it. I want to see I think that Dune and maybe Oppenheimer are the three movies. I'm Oppenheimer is going to be good. Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah I, th I think that sh that I think should be good. When the trailer um, played, I was like, this is going to be called Oppenheimer. And then it popped up. I was like, yep, yeah, it's called Oppenheimer. Of course, it's yeah. just a great name in general. Well, they weren't going to call it Chillian Murphy. They were going to call it disaster. Chillian Murphy talks to, talks to Einstein. Yeah, right. I mean, that conversation that, you know. What are your thoughts? About five on, seconds there. What are your thoughts on independent thinking? You think that's going to vanish? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not even sure we've ever ever really had it. Uh, when you consider the role that my mesis plays in our interactions, and secondly, uh, no, like I said, it, it's you know you don't want to sound paranoid or you don't want to sound conspiratorial, but if you buy into the historical logic of the fourth industrial revolution, meaning that we've had industrial revolutions before, three of them because it's the fourth one, and it has brought about huge changes in cultural and social logics then we're gonna have to undergo our own and i really think more and more than i'm thinking about it it's i think that the model we will all be carrying in the back of our minds is pushing a button and get a result instant gratification yeah in part that's that's the, the hedonistic aspect of it but there's also the cognitive aspect of it why can't i produce the outcome that i want i'm pushing the button why is nothing happening right and that's why I think there will probably be a, first of all, I'm not sure Americans really tolerate dissent as well as they say that they do. And I've certainly gotten to the point now that if there is one way you can guarantee that you will be killed and suffer a violent death. So if you really want to commit suicide, just walk up to any American, whatever it is, whoever it is, and whatever it is that they really, really want, something they really, really want, even if the law is silent on the topic, and say, you don't have any right to that, to have that. You don't have a right to happiness. You don't have the right to be wealthy. Fuck, they you made don't an have the right to have happiness. Well, you don't have the right to have the job you want, whatever. I'm, I'm not, you know, not saying people shouldn't have what they want. I'm saying if you tell them you don't have a right to have what you want, you will be dead before you hit the ground. I don't think that's true. You might be I think a little it's true. bit of exaggeration. Well, okay, we'll give it 20 years and see where we are. That's going to scare the hell out of me. Yeah, me from 20 years, I might probably won't even be here in 20 years, but I'm just saying about well, I think we'll I have feel you more like up to the iron lung pulled into uh, Yes, yeah. oh yeah, it'll be an iron lung. Like what's that movie with all the people in the iron lung in it? It started out a really good horror film and started out really really well. It was set in a sanitarium, a really the world's most surreal sanitarium. And it was the iron lung chamber sequence that was the main sequence of it. And it was a really, it was extracting worms that had psychic capacities from the people all locked up in I the don't iron know, lungs. That sounds trippy as It hell. was a good, except, but for some reason at the end, they botched it somehow. They really blew a great premise. But anyway, I was thinking about that. Yeah. But yes, no, I, I think so. I, I think it, it's, it's whatever we become, our thinking will become more machinic in its structure. In the way that we process things and i don't mean we process mechanically i just think that 
we we think and of course that's the scary thing about ai right i mean ai is capable of solving problems but the reason why people don't like switching it on too much is because it tends to reason sociopathically like you know if the company really will save five billion dollars a year by reducing its workforce by 90 percent then the ai will do that and destroy tens of thousands of lives in the process right yeah i i see that I, I what yeah. Do you think this isolates us into like one day where we'll be living in like vaults of like independent societies or all this under all under the United States of America, but just independent groups and villages? I mean, we technically do that now with cities. I think after the pandemic and everything, people started moving into locations where they agreed with some of the restrictions or the lesser restrictions, depending on where it was. You look at a map now, a lot of that map isn't just scattered red and blue. It's kind of like more ordinated and kind of put together in groups. So you're kind of looking at like I feel like it's we're slowly getting there to where we're really going to start dividing even more, which really sucks. Um, but the all oh no no the the, 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 the division process is totally open ended, holy. But I meant like the way we'll only be able to future communicate will be just through social media and the way we do it now. It's going to be the only way, and that's not a good way to be communicating. Well, that's a question of what you get used to. The scariest thing ever written. The scariest thought. We're talking about about originality and authenticity. The most original, scariest thought of all time was Dostoevsky's one-liner. Man is the only animal who can become completely used to absolutely anything. Damn. So it's simply a question of our training. What we used to call education, which is now just training, right? But I mean, look at look at uh, public education in the United States, what's the what's the main emphasis? Everyone's talking about declining scholastic results and standards, right? Which seems to be true, although I don't really like quantified measurements when it comes to learning or education. I, I think it's mainly bogus, but something seems to be changing. And if you listen to the people defending teachers unions and defending the changes in the curriculum in the public schools, the emphasis now upon basically being a good person. It's like sympathy training, empathy training, um, response, you know, social justice responsibility training. And it's all based upon uh, essentially heightening affectivity, you know, emotional responsiveness to things rather than intellectual or clinical responsiveness to things that require knowledge. It's I see it. That's wrong. Why do you know it's wrong? Because I feel that it is the end i mean i was having a long argument I, i'm against capital punishment for a number of different reasons the main reason being is that i do not believe it is politically sound to allow the state to legally kill its own citizens no matter what they've done okay that's my so i am against capital punishment but i also understand or at least i understood and this is like you know 20 years ago so i may be way way out of it uh is that you do need to have reasons pro and against so you can actually converse with people on the other side in a rationally constructive manner and maybe come up with a mutually agreeable compromise or something like that or at least explain yourself and i was talking to this you know transplanted brit brit british english expat who was in the united states and he decided he, he did what a lot of the english do when they come to the united states they decide become moral crusaders because the americans haven't got you know they've let their game down so they're trying to improve things you know because the english also have an intensely moralistic view of history being the birth, the spawning ground of Puritanism, uh, along with the Netherlands, as we've come to know uh, Puritanism. 
And uh, he's a dude was, and I was saying, well, you know, he comes out and he's going on evil, 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 evil. And I said, how do you know it's evil? I mean, can you, you know, I'm not going to deny that it is, but I can come up with an argument why I think, or at least it's wrong and not a good thing, a good idea to engage in capital punishment. Whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know, but I've got an argument to make about it. And they said, what's your argument? He says, I don't need an argument. Fuck philosophy. It's wrong. I'm opposing it. The end. And I said to myself afterwards, I said, well, you know, he's not wrong in the sense that if all you want to do is recruit an activist to be a member of your army fighting for change, whatever that is, whether it's from the left or whether it's from the right, well, that's probably a good attitude to have. But if you're outside of the context of do we really want to divide our society into nothing nothing more than nothing other than competing armies that's your choice i will say i agree with the fuck philosophy thing um mostly just because i have, don't really like talking to philosophers on my show i think you're probably one that is not at like the others um I've talked to a lot of philosophers I have on my show throughout my show, but there's always becomes a point where they start in pushing their view of the world onto you a little bit. And I can't stand that shit. And it just gets like, oh, but he meant philosophy is shorthand for theory. I mean, I, but what he's saying is I don't need an argument. I'm running on adrenaline here. Yeah. He's messed up because he comes from another country and he comes here and everything's also ass backwards the way he's used to. Right. That's oh, oh oh he believe me he he gave that off like pheromones you know mm -hmm. you could really tell sitting next to this guy that's how he felt but at the I same turn time on the deep throat aren't you but yeah but isn't isn't that sort of what we're getting into it's it's like you know this is my story this is my truth this is my passion well, fine but what we've done new in all of this is a that's all you need because there's nothing else there's nothing else to talk about what else is there to talk about. It's irrelevant. It it just dissuades me. It confuses me. That's not the point. The point is to get to where I want to go. I don't know what to say to that one. Well, there was somebody at the New York Times. I've read this in the New York Times. It's I, captured. I get... Don't listen to it. Don't read it. Okay. I, well, I get stories online, so you got an email. I, get, I, I read. I read some of the op. I read some of the op. <laughs> They'll never let you unsubscribe from their email. That's right. for true. Yeah. No. I, there's no. They got they, the CIA has got its hooks in me. Okay. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be stuck with New York Times op-ed updates for the rest of my life. But <laughs> I do read them once in a while, and I do not know the person's name, but this was quoted in the New York Times. So just saying that this is coming from an op-ed published in the New York Times, that it was some uh, senior female editor. Um, at either, and I won't mention because it's female, because she mentions men in the in this story, the anecdote, either the Washington Post or the New York Times. And the person writing the op-ed was talking about she that other person, the editor at one of the other papers, or either the Times or the Post, um, published her New Year's resolution. And her New Year's res resolutions had two parts. So the first one was, do everything I can to cultivate and develop my friendships with other people and learn to become more harmonious and forgiving. The second resolution was kill all men. She broke it already. She already fucking broke it. She broke no, it faster than yeah, people but, that. But, but no, but you, you're being sorry. You're being naive about it again. She hasn't broken it. That's the thing. She has not broken it because both reflect 
her affectivity, her affections, not affections, affections. That's where she wants to go. See, if, if patriarchy is the source of evil, patriarchy is therefore the wrong side of history, even though it's prevailed the last 12 to 15,000 years. But getting rid of it is the key to solving the first condition, the first thing you have to do, the prerequisite for solving all the other major problems is to dismantle patriarchy, or at least disable it in some way. Then, and that's what you believe, and I'm not saying you're wrong at all, but I'm saying if that is your belief, you are moved into basically a revolutionary situation. And if you are a genuine revolutionary, then you cannot compromise. Revolutionaries do not compromise. They may wait. They can make strategic decisions. That means they kind of like power down for a while or keep their mouths shut or censor their own thoughts so that nothing leaks out that harms the cause. Would you, but call, at the me end a, of the day, would you call me a revolutionary? No. Good. Good, because you're wearing like a peace shirt, and it, it, it's so it's you're so obviously giving the game away. You can't possibly be the thing that can't you, you think tell that you this might is be. a false. This is a false thing. I'm doing this so people don't see I'm violent. Yeah, it's a white op, right? Honestly, you're throwing it, it a, out there. It was to, on sale. You're not $6. lying, but it, it's misdirection. <laughs> it was six dollars. I had to buy it. I was like, shit. That's you know, you know we know that's too much information. My other one is a Disney one, and I wear that when I want because I won't talk about Disney because I'm getting a little scared from them. Scared for them or scared of them? Scared of them. Mm. They got a lot of power, I'm realizing. I'm looking through some of these damn Walt Disney documents. I'm like, holy shit, what are you guys connected to, you Germans? No, they are. They really are one of the world's most powerful institution businesses. I know. It's scary. Um, no, I just, I, I think there's like a lot of things. I think you're, like debates, I never, I don't like, I don't like debates. Um, I know people go, well, debate it and solve it like this. I'm like, no, you can't debate things. You, just, you guys are never going to agree. So you might as well just share your perspectives and have an equal conversation about it so at least you can see what the other person is seeing. Like that's all anyone should be really prescribing to. You're not trying to change people's minds but trying to understand someone's viewpoint just so you go, okay, I don't agree with that, but I understand where you're coming from now. Right. Or the world goes to shit. Well. Do you have hope for it? I'm a pessimist. Oh, yeah. No, I don't have any hope for it. Well, I mean – by hope, I mean, I wouldn't even say really I'm a pessimist in the sense, I'm, well, let me put it this way. By American standards, I'm probably a pessimist. By European standards, I'm probably just a hardcore realist. And really what I would describe myself as is simply a fatalist. I believe in historical determinism, or I should say the deterministic nature of history, minus individual spontaneous discontinuities that can emerge, because complex systems can behave erratically. And, and, and randomly and unpredictably over time. But in, in general, I have a deterministic theory of history. It, it's not specifically a Marxist one, although obviously economic factors play an important role in that. Um, and class struggle plays an important role in that. But I mean, then you can deconstruct class just like you can deconstruct gender or race if you really put your mind to it. Uh, but no, I'm I'm just a fatalist. I mean, I just, you know, I, how do we stop these trends? How do you get Americans off that their cultural axiom, their first assumption, is a moralistic or a moralizing view of history? That's why we, one reason why Americans will never be done with conspiracy theory, because conspiracy theory, among other things, is a pro, uh, uh, an instrument of moral censure. You know, either the government is evil or that which resists the government is good because when you frame something in conspiratorial terms, you tend to be 
even unconsciously evoking moral absolutes. That's why we've got to get Nixon. Or getting Nixon is the key to everything else. Makes a little bit of sense. Okay. I want to ask before, because it's my, like my last question. We got to get back to deep third at some point. Um, Mark Felt, whatever happened to him? I actually am not sure. He is passed he... away a few years ago, but I, I don't really know what happened to him after he left the FBI. I'm curious if he ever spoke out about other people being deep throat. I am not aware of that. Okay. I know we kind of covered a lot here. I appreciate the time, um, Eric. Okay. Sure, I'll have you back on again. But um, sure. when uh, what do you want to promote? You said your new book. You had a new book coming out. Oh yeah, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, I got my new books on uh on James Elroy. It's entitled "The View from Howard's Fuckpad." <laughs> Are you serious? Yes, I am serious. I fucking that, love that, that, dude. That, that that you will not believe. Oh, and the cover, uh, the if cover. I mean, me, I designed it, it myself. I designed it. it right I designed there. it with one of. The, oh yeah, no, no, go no. True, you can download it. It's, it's on. It's online now. You can see it on on the net. I want a paperback uh, version that has some deep throat jokes in it. Well, there are some, a couple of things like that. I mean, not exactly like that, but kind of like that. Yeah, it's so it's it's called. The title is, "The View from Howard's Fuck That Howard Being Howard Use." The view from and a few other things. The view from Howard's fuckpad. The deep state, bad white men, and the weird noir of James Elroy. And one reason weird noir is kind of a name that I kind of coined, although some other people have been kind of thinking along similar lines, which is sort of like the fusion of crime literature with horror, with horror literature with crime literature, crime writing and horror writing, right? So that's where what's one of the things I'm interested in is 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 the exact points of intersection, just like in the Flash, you know. Oh, and all these multiverses, like all those loons of spaghetti that all overlap That's with each other. That was the best scene was Michael Keaton There are that. certain intersectional points that just have to be there no matter what. They're inevitabilities. Okay. Inevitabilities are what we would call fate, okay? And like, you know, uh, and just, and what basically what it means is that on Tim Burton universe Earth, General Zod is going to kill Supergirl, spoiler alert, no matter what, right? It just can't be undone, right? Everyone just goes crazy, but you can't undo it. No matter how many times you go back in time, you're not going to change it because it's always got to come out. This and I, this is one outcome that has to be there, okay, for that universe to be what it is, okay. So, um, what does that have anything to do with my book? Okay, yeah. So I mean, I come out with a book. The, so I'm interested in the points of interface or the what do you call them? What do they call them in the movie again? In inevitabilities. Inevitabilities between crime literature and horror literature. Okay. And that's what I mean by weird noir. I did one on Lovecraft. I did one on Elroy. And it is coming out with Punctum Books in October because we des I designed the cover, co-designed the cover with one of the editors of Punctum. And we came up with something that was so hideous, no joke, that we decided this is not good for Easter. It's going to have to co coincide with Halloween. So the books come, it was advertised for spring 2023, but it's actually going to come out in October 2023. And it's at Punctum Books, and you can go online and look it up and you can see the cover and everything. And uh, it's just like, it's incredible. I mean, it's like the greatest thing ever written. And once October rolls around, we'll have you back just to be able to discuss. Yeah, well, if not before. And I'll, I'll tell the other guys to the other podcast all about it too. Okay, that's fair. Okay. Thanks, thanks for cheating on me. I wanted no exclusives. Problem. Deep um, throat. Oh, deep throat. He's a I'll... rambling man.
I, <laughs> I want to make sure I link your links in the description. Eric, seriously, it's been a pleasure again, man. And um, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Avid Link Podcast. Stay tuned for next episode.